0: Have a seat, everyone. We move into our teaching time. Uh, We've had the Lord's table. That was very cool about the children coming in with the First Communion families. Again, thank you for being here. Um, There's more to it, in my opinion, than what meets the eye. We're just not simply doing ritual with children. I think we are... What the church can offer, what the church offers, is that we teach our children that they have a soul, that they're not just machines, that they're not just materialists. We teach children, children that they are transcendent beings made by their creator to aspire towards heaven and spiritual things. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Cool. So we move into our teaching time. If you have your Bible or if you bring it up on your app or whatever and you feel comfortable with that, that's fine. I also gave you a half sheet of paper that has part of the scripture on it. We are in the Old Testament we are in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And here's what we have beginning really in verse 1. Not all the scripture that we're reading is on the piece of paper. So if you want to bring it up on your phone or iPad or whatever you have, that be, might be good. Here we have it. Here's the situation. The Hebrew prophet Elijah has just wiped out the prophets of Baal. Baal is an idol. Those uh, idolatrous Baal prophets belong to Queen Jezebel, who's not a Hebrew. She married King Ahab as a political alliance. But she's got an attitude and she's got power and she is not happy with Elijah who just killed off all of her prophets of Baal. Verse one. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel uh, King Ahab told Queen Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Translation, you're a dead man, Elijah, when I get hold of you. And then Elijah was afraid. Huh? And he got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to the tribe of Judah, and he left his servant there, verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he asked God that he might die. It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep, and suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. And he looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up, Elijah, eat and drink. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. He got up, ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place. He came to a cave and spent the night there. And then, and then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they're seeking my life to take it away. What are you doing here, Elijah? The question of God. We can personalize the same question to each one of us here this morning. What are each of you doing on this planet this morning? What's your life all about? Where are you going? What time are you living in? What water... Are you swimming in? If we ask the average American this question these days, I believe we'll receive an answer, something kind of akin to, Well, I'm doing the best I can. I'm limping along. I'm managing. I'm working on it. Or, as one man told me, Dan, I'm just trying to entertain myself until I die. More positive and thoughtful folk may say something like, Well, I'm a work in progress. I'm on a journey. Sometimes two steps forward and one step back, but I'm I'm getting there. So this morning I want to critique this notion of progress that's pervasive in our culture. I want to pull back the curtain on our culture's idea of personal progress and the ups and downs of it on it. And there's a paradox in here. And then I want to offer a spiritual prescription of silence, solitude and silence for the soul. And this is to be an alternative to culture's prescription for what ails us, because culture would say, you're supposed to be making progress. But there is a problem with it. Americans love progress. We love the American dream. We love pushing forward. We like making advances. We like to be productive These days, all of us love this word journey in the church and even outside the church because we love this idea of journey because it has a feeling of progress to it. We're here and we're going there. We're there and now we're going to go there. There's movement to it. And all of us are on a journey and we like this idea of being on a journey. So we're on our way. We're making progress. But life has its ups and downs, its mountaintop experiences, and its valleys of despair. And journey, that word, tells us that we're moving ahead and we just haven't arrived yet. It is this sort of pervasive thing about moving but not arriving that I want to address. There's this paradox in this idea of journey. What what if we get trapped in sort of a no-man's land? What if we stall out? What if the progress, we wake up 10 years into it and we think, I've not really changed much in my life. I'm not closer to God. I'm not even, uh, I don't think I'm a better parent. I don't think I'm a better husband or wife. I don't think much is really going on in my life. Instead, what we find is that we're getting nowhere. We progress, but we never arrive. We feel like we're on that proverbial hamster wheel, Running and running and running and running and running and never getting there. I wouldn't really call the hamster wheel making progress, right? So I propose that this progress is exactly where we find ourselves in our culture these days. I call it the therapeutic malaise. And there's your 10-cent word for the day. Therapeutic malaise. I got another 10-cent word coming at you. But this is the first one. I only have two. I call this, um, we are in a therapeutic malaise. Malaise, it's that word that kind of says, meh. You're just sort of like stalled. It's sort of a fog, like you're just sort of drifting, like you're in the doldrums on the sea and there's no wind to fill your sails because you're just sitting there. You not really know if you're going forward or backward. The therapeutic malaise is what this is called. And in this malaise, as some people might have called it a couple of decades ago, that we're in the Prozac generation and so forth, here's how it gets described. And so I have this diagram, and it's on your little half sheet of piece of paper, and this is where this golf pencil is going to come in handy because there's a couple of blanks to fill in, which keeps you deeply engaged. Um, So here's what we have going on with this whole thing. What we find in culture, uh, let's go back 500 years to the 15th century, back to their time. You know, back in the 15th century, people were obsessed with personal sin. This is the day of indulgences. This is the day where Dante's Inferno is the picture in everyone's mind. Their worldview 500 years ago was that there were demons and that there were angels and that there was a devil and he was out to get you, right? And God will punish wrongdoers and reward right doers. And you better have your stuff together. Otherwise it's going to go bad. As a matter of fact, your dead relatives can be sprung out of purgatory if you pay enough money. People were, uh, you have to understand, there was no democracy. There were no republics. People didn't have a vote or anything like that. And Personal sin was what everyone was consumed with. It was a reward and punishment culture. Right? What's also interesting then, since there's personal sin in the 15th century, over here in the other part, what about society? In society, people are ambivalent. There's your other 10-cent word for the morning. They're ambivalent about society's evils and sin. After all, you're just a merchant in venice and you're just doing your boat taxi all day long you don't have any say on who's the prince and who's the king and what you get taxed and all that sort of thing you don't get to have a fair trial there's no habeas corpus you don't get to vote what about the plague the plague comes on everyone and maybe you get you know hit with the plague and maybe you don't maybe you better think real hard about your personal sin about whether or not the plague is going to get you but you can't do anything about it. Nobody's making a call to the you know, Center for Disease Control saying, hey, somebody do something about this. I'm paying taxes. That's not happening. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Ambivalent about society's evils. All those rich people and all those princes and kings, what can you do about it? Wait until they die off, I guess. Maybe you'll get a better king next time. Ambivalent. Jump to the 20th century or our 21st century. I'm just going to go with the 20th century. And what's interesting here, this gets to our notion of progress, is that when it comes to the person, we are personally ambivalent. We, don't, we, don't, we think in terms not in terms of sin like they did 500 years ago. Instead, we think in terms of I'm just unhealthy. I'm, on, I'm making progress. I'm on a journey. I'm healthy and I'm unhealthy. Two steps forward, one step back. Sin becomes sickness. And guilt is moved to blamelessness. No one's blame has blame in our culture personally. Everyone's just working on it. It's like they're in therapy. Now, I don't have anything against therapy and doctors. I've been going to a counselor for 11 years. Sometimes, like I always say, I think he ought to pay me. But nonetheless... Um, I'm not against any of that. So don't get me wrong. That's my caveat on this whole thing. But I do believe that therapists and doctors have replaced clergy and confessors. In this day, you confess your sin. Someone worked on things between you and the Almighty. But not anymore. You just go to counseling. And you get stuck in this malaise. this, This sort of like, I'm working on it. But am I getting anywhere? And we all end up sort of eh, quasi unhealthy healthy. Tracking with me on this? Instead, this idea then of personal ambivalence versus like we are sinners keeps us in a place Where we can never receive the gift of God. We never actually receive some sort of forgiveness. Now, counselors and everyone will talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. But it is always a forgiveness and a reconciliation within your own skin. All of heaven and hell is all working out inside of you. It's not outside of the person. Right? It's not outside of you. So what's happened here, just to kind of make this thing fun, what you then see is, uh, and just to complete this then, is down here then in the 20th century, society is now what's evil. In the 20th century, global warming, Washington inside the Beltway people, Wall Street, education systems, higher education, Society and those things out there, those large things, those are the things that are evil now. Vaccinations. Those people who vaccinate, those people who don't vaccinate. All of this sort of thing now is out there. But you, you're just kind of getting along. Blameless. I'm working on it. But those people, burn them at the stake. Those nameless things out there government right right left liberal conservative lumped into this vague sort of general thing over here then we just end up with a gray cloudy soul sickness we are always striving but never arriving And so God comes and asks us, and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And we answer, I don't know. I I feel stuck. I'm in a fog. I'm working on it. I don't know if it's doing any good. I feel like that hamster on the hamster wheel, striving but never arriving. And so God says, go out. Stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, verse 11, so strong that it is splitting the mountains and breaking the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a sound of sheer silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I suppose I'm the soul doctor around here. And the soul doctor prescribes solitude and silence for your soul. <laughs> You know, the interesting conundrum on that is that any time a doctor tells us what we're supposed to do, we instantly say, I'll see. I better check WebMD. So I know what's going on right now. I'm proposing that you engage in solitude and silence for the health of your soul. And you're thinking, I don't have to. Because we are all autonomous individuals doing whatever we want. Nonetheless, that's my prescription. Silence is how Elijah hears the voice of God. Notice Elijah flees to a desert. He doesn't go to his therapist's office and sit in a nice comfy chair with a box of tissues. No, Elijah finds himself out in a desolate place where there's nothing to eat. It's a terrifying place. The desert is always a terrifying place. If you want to encounter God, you may go to a place that is not comfortable. That place is you. That place is solitude and silence. Elijah has just experienced this tremendous success. He's, he's seen the prophets of Baal fall. And, and by the way, the prophets of Baal scholars tell us that Baal worship not only was a fertility worship, but it involved child sacrifice. Not real good for the people, for people whose one of their primary commands is, Thou shalt not kill. So you can see where this is upsetting God and Elijah and the people of Hebrew, the Hebrew people. So Jezebel, of course, who had her prophets killed, is trying to kill Elijah. And Elijah fears and runs away, and he runs to this mountain of God. And there he waits upon the Lord in solitude and silence. So, I didn't write this script originally. This is written right out of Elijah's life and many other people, including Jesus, who goes off early in the morning to pray and to the garden to ask God if this cup can be removed. And move it from me. Not my will, but yours. And Elijah hears the question of God. Not a comfortable place, the mountain of God. Actually, it sounds very terrifying. Rock splitting winds, earthquakes, fires. Solitude and silence is a trial of the soul. Solitude and silence reveals that we are not just making progress, but that we are absolutely in an abyss. Sometimes because of our own sin. Sometimes because of what's been done to us. Author Henry Nowen, one of my favorite authors from way back when, Henry Nowen wrote this about solitude and silence. He says this, and it's on your piece of paper, by the way. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding, my scaffolding, no friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget about my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. Just a little bit of something gets us into this personal malaise. And that will not change us. It just won't. It just puts us on the hamster wheel. No, there's nothing comfortable about solitude and silence, and yet this is exactly what I believe Christians need this day. Our culture offers so few spiritual disciplines and practices. Instead, it offers up a consumer Christianity where it's just all about you. Mindfulness is all the rage these days in therapy, and it's good. But mindfulness is like solitude and silence except without God. No Mount Horeb, no cave, no wind, no earthquake, no fire, no sheer silence, no deafening whisper of God. What are you doing here, Elijah? No penetrating question. No culpability, no guilt. Nothing like that. So you can see in our day and age what's happened here. We've traded things out from the 15th century to the 20th century. What was once personal sin has now moved to society. And, and what, what was once then ambivalent about society's evils has moved to personal ambivalence. A great shift has happened philosophically in our world. And we all think we're making progress. And it's not that healthy. I've been practicing silence and solitude for decades now. I didn't plan to, I stumbled into it because I was burned out doing ministry. And on advice of spiritual directors, I was told to go get away for a day, for a night, for two nights. And what I found in that solitude and silence was all sorts of itchiness. All the questions you don't want to face about yourself, come out. All the things that make you anxious, they come to the surface. You'll find yourself on a walk, perfectly content and whatever, and then suddenly God will smack you up against the head with some sort of thing, like, what are you doing here? Are you ready for this sort of thing? See, I believe pastors and authentic Christians ought to be holy men and women. They ought to look entirely different than the surrounding culture. They ought to look different by the, by the nature and the feature and the, the, the flavor of their soul. They ought to be appearing as people who look attractive because they are soulish people. Not because they're busy and competent. Because they go fast. Eugene Peterson The pastor's pastor, who just passed away last week, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors who continues to smack me up against the head every time I read him. Eugene Peterson said this: He said, Busy pastor is an oxymoron, like adulterous spouse or embezzling banker. And I'm convinced that busy Christian is just as wrongheaded. What our culture lacks are Christians who are spiritual guides. Because you and I both know, as I've said many times, you're going to walk out in that lobby. And after you say, hey, what about those chiefs? You're going to say, what you been doing? And the conversation is going to go just like this. Talk about the Malays. Oh, I'm busy. Oh, I'm real busy. Busy these days chasing the kids all over town. We've got sports here and sports there and dance here and fencing and horseback riding. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey, we got to get together sometime. Mm-hmm. Go chiefs. That sound typical? See, we're busy, and we think that's a merit badge. Because if you weren't busy, what are you? Unemployed? I don't know what you're doing. Even the unemployed are tremendously busy, by the way. Instead, our conversation ought to be like, I'm not doing much. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to look at the colors like Charlie was talking about. I'm not going to do much. Maybe the kids and I are all just going to crawl up on the floor this afternoon and just do nothing, eat orange food, you know, Cheetos, Doritos, anything with toes on the end of it. <laughs> but we get busy and we cave into left and right political ideologies and whether or not we're going to win and who's going to lose and how dominant we can be. And it eats us alive. And we lose our soul. And Christians keep following into reacting to Queen Jezebel. Over the years, I've taken dozen, perhaps hundreds, of souls on retreat into the cabins in the woods, in the monasteries, and faraway lands on pilgrimages. And I take them primarily so I can get them in a place, just in a place where God can ask them, "What are you doing here, Elijah?" And then I let the Holy Spirit take over after that. It's an easy job. It's got to get you alone. That's the hard part. And it's like pulling teeth. Well, that's all I got for you on this prescription. So I'm going to leave you with that. And we're going to start talking about next week.